After 32 years, I came out of the closet as a gay Christian pastor. Finally, on the outside of that suffocating prison, I'm looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. It's not enough to become informed. We have to do something about the harm we're still witnessing within systems and spaces we've been loyal to for so long. It's time we become reformers. All right, everybody, welcome back. I've been having different voices coming in from different spaces, spe speaking to specific things. And so I'm excited to introduce Benji to you guys today. Um, I'm excited to get to, you know, unpack this whole conversation around racism in the evangelical church and how that's played out and all the things. I've followed Benji on Instagram for several months now, and I've just been very impressed with his work, his content, the things that he's saying, the nuance, the specificity. Um, so I wanted to pull him on and have him get to like share his perspective and insight and all that. So Benji, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For sure. Um, well, so to get us started, just because I know like I bet a lot of people who are listening maybe have never heard of you before or have been exposed to anything that you do. Do you want to just give them a brief intro of who you are and what you're doing in the world? Yeah. So uh, I'm Benji. Um, I am uh, a content creator. I kind of fell into that. <laughs> um, but, uh, I am very much, uh, a content creator now. I'm a former educator. Um, I spent 20 years in the, uh, evangelical space, both in black and white spaces. And so I've been able to see it from, uh, both angles, both sides of the coin, if you will. Um, I am a former, uh, music director on a few of those worship teams. So I got to see things from the worship angle as well. Um, and what I do um if i can put a sort of a, a bow on it because i kind of do a lot of stuff yeah but um i talk about a lot of different things uh on my instagram um everything from racism to uh where it dovetails with church um politics um i talk a lot about my experiences as an adoptee um as well and then we do some fun things as well. Uh, I do a series on my Instagram called 90 Minutes of Never Getting Back, where I watch a movie that I know is terrible for the first time and just like live Instagram through it. Um, nice. And sometimes there's uh, there's echoes of evangelicalism there as well. Um, I did one of the Left Behind films a few months ago, so that was a lot of fun. Wow. Okay. So like, I don't know, you know, there's so many directions this conversation can go, but basically sure. what I want to start with Benji is mostly just getting to hear from you and just hear your story. I know for a lot of people who are listening or watching, this is probably the first time they're being exposed to you. So we'd just love to get to hear your background, your story, you know, whatever you feel is pertinent and want to share. I'm, I'm all ears and I'll probably just like interject with questions as we go. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, grew up just outside of Philadelphia. Um, like I mentioned, I am an adoptee. I was taken in, um, very early on in my life, probably about six or seven weeks old. And, um, so I, again, I grew up outside the city, uh, had a real interest in music and I grew up, uh, in an adoptive family that was very musical. So there, there was music around all the time and there were instruments around. And then, uh, so that quickly became my passion in life. I, uh, picked up guitar at around seven or eight years old. Um, and then from there on just, you know, started playing in bands, did all that kind of stuff. Um, didn't have a really extensive church background initially, though. That didn't happen until I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, from then on, I started getting involved in church in different capacities, like boys mentoring, that kind of thing. Um, what, a was lot of the thing 
how did you end up getting involved in church to begin with? So my adoptive parent uh, was starting to get back into that element of their spirituality. And so they kind of pulled me and my younger brother along. Um, and so it really wasn't so much of a choice or in a, like um, even uh, accepting Christ wasn't necessarily on my terms. Yeah. Um, it was her or like, you know, it was being presented with the idea several times and not really being sure what or not. And then after a few months being like, no, you're going up there and you're, you're, you're getting, you know, so, you know, it really wasn't my faith, at least not initially. Um, it was very much by proxy early on. Mm -hmm. Um, and because it was a one parent household, I was put into voice mentoring, uh, because I had struggles. I had struggles with a lot of things, self-esteem, uh, figure out who I was, all things that are normal that I understand now as an adult that are normal for kids who are, you know, adopted from birth, you're disconnected from uh, sort of your host reference, if you will. So um, you struggle emotionally with who you are, because you kind of don't know who you are practically, mm -hmm. if you don't have any reference for where you come from, you know, so um, had a lot of those struggles early on. And I think that my adoptive parent thought that, you know, being in a Christian environment, I might have some, uh, be able to get some kind of piece of that back. Um, a lot of, you know, I can't replace for your father, but maybe Jesus can be your father, like, like that type of language, um, which isn't the healthiest language, to be honest, but um, didn't know that then, you know. Um, so yeah, I was, I struggled a lot. And there were also issues within that family system as well. Um, I think a lot of people adopt without really fully understanding the psychological ramifications of what that entails on both sides. So not only just what the, the adoptee is going through, but also if they haven't addressed the things within themselves that need addressing, if they haven't addressed the trauma that maybe they've experienced in their life and maybe they're looking to the adoption to kind of fill some of those holes, uh, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, and so I think there was a lot of that tension uh, growing up. Um, as time went on, I became more involved on my own, uh, but that really didn't happen until I got older, you know, like, you know, late teens, early twenties, started getting into college and things like that. Uh, studied sound engineering in college. Uh, so I love being in studios. I love recording. I love doing that type of stuff. Um, and it was an outlet from kind of the mess that was going on in my life because like I mentioned like it was rough and it just kind of just got rougher as I got older um things eventually went uh, kind of came to a head and I ended up leaving that environment and uh it was very turbulent for a while but eventually I ended up on my own moved to uh Florida started teaching uh became a fourth grade teacher with the uh, boys and girls club. And so I got into nonprofit and started getting into all kinds of uh, different uh, opportunities within that. That being said, a lot of those gremlins from my uh, adoption started to creep in as I got older uh, in a very practical sense. So when I was born, my birth certificate and my social security card didn't have the same names on them. So one had my mother's last name and the other had uh, my father's last name. Never met the dude, but his name's on my birth certificate, you know? And that doesn't present a problem when you're younger, but when you're, you know, a thousand miles from home and you're looking to transition out of one job into another and get an apartment and do all kinds of stuff when your documentation doesn't match, all of that stops. And I should mention that uh, around this time, I was about to get married. <laughs> so um, 
I ended up not being able to work for about two years and was homeless for a large period of that time. And, you know, still serving, still going to church, still faithfully serving, being like an MD, you know, um, I wrote in a post a few months ago, you know, uh, I didn't have my home, but my church always had a guitar player. You know, they, they always knew they could rely on me no matter where I was, no matter how many buses it took to get to where I needed to get. I was always there. Eventually we did climb out of that. Um, I was able to get my uh, documentation sorted, sorted out thanks to a local nonprofit that was doing that. And I ended up getting to work with that nonprofit um, in a more official capacity and serving the homeless. Um, served at a couple churches in Florida, but the last church I was at was really where I got to see the underbelly of white evangelicalism. Those churches that I went to in Florida, both of them were my first experiences with white evangelical spaces. Because up until that point, I had been in largely black spaces. Um, and there is a very big difference between those two things, especially when it gets into denominations and things like that, Baptist, Kojic, things like that. Um, but in white evangelical spaces, especially when it's more of a mega church style thing where you're serving at a campus of a much larger you know, entity, uh, there's a lot of similarities. And so we did that. Uh, but the last church I went to was really where I started to see uh, the racism show up in a real way. Um, at the previous church, there hadn't really been a whole lot of stuff, maybe little comments that fly by you. Um, I've shared this and other things before, but I remember uh, being in a car with my uh, former pastor's mother, who basically said that, uh, so Barack Obama was the president at the time. And she had mentioned that uh, she felt like Barack Obama didn't have the real black experience because he went to Harvard. Uh, which is to essentially insinuate that, you know, intelligence and blackness are insimpatico. Right. And it was, it's one of those things that just kind of flies by you in, in the sense of general conversation. And then you get home like afterwards, you're like, wait, what the heck was that supposed to mean? <laughs> um, but when we went to the church after that, you know, it started being really, you know, a little more intense. A lot of anti-Obama sentiment that didn't really seem to make any sense literally having um like being driven home from my first worship practice and your worship leader is railing on about how much they don't like black lives matter and how they don't think black people actually have experienced real racism and they don't know what that means and you know completely unprovoked so yeah i i've seen a lot of that happen and then uh like a lot of people 2020 was really the flashpoint for me um it was where things really came to a head and it wasn't so much trump that was the thing that set me off. Like Trump is who he's been for the last 35 years. Like I, I said in, a, in, in my stories recently that he is the logical progression of a post Reagan Republican party. Like he makes sense to me. Um, it was my church's reaction to all of the shootings that were happening that year. So, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and um, George and Brianna and just all of the names you remember. Um, and there was no response. And it was that that sort of set all the wheels in motion. Mm. Um, and I suppose we can go into details in a, a little bit later if you want to. But uh, uh, I ended up leaving church in 2020 and kind of being in this weird space of I've always done the rinse and repeat of I'm leaving a space. I'm going to try to find something else. But I was so just emotionally exhausted and just taxed by the end of that. that I just needed to stop. But I was still in this weird like in between emotional spiritual purgatory, if you will, and didn't really know where to land. 
And suddenly, you know, as if serendipitously, I landed on a bunch of uh, pages on my sort of explore page on Instagram uh, that started talking about this concept of deconstruction. And I hadn't considered that at all, but it was them really kind of putting a name to a face for me. And I began to pull on that thread and ask questions and dig into certain things and um, started talking about it on Instagram and eventually shared my story of leaving church and why I did it and all that stuff. And, you know, so that was three years ago now, and it's kind of begun to grow into this weird kind of non-specific thing that I do uh, in social media space. So, yeah, yeah. nice. Okay, cool. Great. I mean, I have so many questions that were coming up, but, um, (laughs) yeah, it's what's coming up for me just in response to that is like, similarly, I didn't realize, you know, I was, I was so removed from the racist conversation until the summer of 2020, right. When George Mm -hmm. Floyd happened and just, there was so much like tension where I was, I was in Redding, California when that was happening. Oh yeah. 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 And so that explains it, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I had to, I literally remember like seven days. I just stepped away from Instagram. I stopped putting content out and was like, I need to like pull back. I don't know what's going on here. I was getting like a lot of demands almost from people on two different sides of this conversation. I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was so intense. And so I just like put it away and yeah. then just started like doing my own research as much as I could find like. I just wanted to listen, especially to black people on what they were saying about racism. And I started like just YouTube videos, podcast episodes, documentaries. Right. And I think on like about day seven of that process, I was watching, I forget the name of the documentary, but it was like, Oh, it was on Netflix, I think. And there were a lot of graphic images of lynchings or whatever. And just talking about like the, the prison system and like just some things yeah. that had happened and some of the stuff I'd never heard in my life. And I was like, what is what? And about halfway through I, something clicked and emotionally, whatever was like protecting me broke. And I just started weeping. And I was like, I have not been a human in this. I have not been, I didn't know that mm. I wasn't listening. I couldn't hear it. I couldn't feel it. And like, that was a turning point for me. It was pretty dramatic and like isolated, but um, sure, sure. It forced me to have to like enter into that conversation in a different way with a different posture, with the humility that I was threatened by before and all of a sudden found like was leading. So when you're describing that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember that time in our country. And that I think that was like really um, consequential for a lot of us, you know, sure, that sure. summer was so... Sure. Anyway, so I would just love to hear um, first when we just step into that space on the race side of this, like, um, was there something that happened that made you finally decide to walk away from church? Or was it like a culmination of things like what ultimately led to that decision, I guess, is where I want to start. Um, so what led to that decision? Um, well, certainly there was a cumulative element to it where yeah. things had happened in the past. I mentioned some of those things to you and some snide comments and things like that. Uh, about blackness or standing behind two white people talking in a line about like why people why black people are a certain way when they could have very easily turned around and talked to us and we would have addressed some of those things but for me what did it was so I mentioned that uh, our leadership team was not really talking about it Um, but if you remember a lot of churches were talking about racial tension around that time, mm-hmm. mainly because I don't think they could ignore it. So as you start seeing messages from Furtick and all of the major 
kind of people and uh i think at one point bethel did like a total gandalf thing where they like were banging a stick on the ground and like it, it was it was a whole thing um yeah. <laughs> i've had a good laugh at that at that clip multiple times but um but a lot of churches and and our church the one that we were going to was one church that was a part of a a network of churches um with one main church based in the south and um so I think there's like 60 of them like worldwide uh, or something like that. Mm. And a lot of other churches in the movement were discussing uh, this thing. And, you know, like so white pastors being like, hey, white people, we need to look at this. Uh, like racism is not the way of Jesus. And it was it was in the middle of a lot of the black squares thing that was yeah. happening. Right. And so we noticed that there was a palpable silence from our leadership team. And at this time, our church had about 250, 300 people in it. And my wife and I alone were about 20% of the black community there. Um, it was tiny. There were only a handful of us, but one of the other black people um, who was there, who eventually also left and we're still really good friends with, they hit us up and were like, yo, like, do y'all find it strange that like our pastor isn't talking about this? And we were like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not entirely surprising given past actions, but they should be talking about this, especially considering other people in the movement are discussing this. So what, what's you know, the holdup? But we said, you know what, we'll give them another Sunday's grace. If this Sunday, this coming Sunday, you don't say anything, then we're going to be like, hey, what's going on? Sure enough, Sunday rolls around, not a peep. So we make a plan to talk to uh, the worship director because the worship director essentially functioned like an associate pastor. Like they were, they were the right-hand man of the, uh, of, of the pastor. But before we could do that, that night, the pastor called us, uh, called my wife on, on, on her phone and they were like, hey, um, so we just heard about the George Floyd thing. Now this news had been out for a while by this point, like at least a month by wow. this point. Now, let me, let me also say that this pastor prided themselves, prided themselves on not having a TV, um, not listening to like, you know, the political, this, that, or the third, but they moved in a way that is reflective of Fox News talking points, which was very interesting. So it's like, maybe you don't have a TV, but y'all got the internet, you know? Right. So it's coming from somewhere, <laughs> um, either that or, you know, Republican politics really haven't changed that much in 40 years and they haven't, but, um, so, uh, they were like, yeah, we, we I, I literally just found out about this. Um, so I didn't know and blah, 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 but ultimately a whole lot of filler words later, they said, we're not going to address it. And their rationale was in so many words, they said that if we address this, we'll have to address everything else. If we address the racism thing, then in their words, they'll have to address the gay thing. And they and we, we just kind of just don't want to touch that. And people are going to expect us to do this and blah, blah, blah. It's a church of 300 people. I don't know how who's going to expect them to do anything, <laughs> you know, but that was their thinking. Mm. Um, they just didn't want to touch it. And they certainly had enough privilege to, uh, you know, exist above the fray of that. Because like I said, we were 20% of the black population and none of them were on leadership. Right. At least, well, I won't say none of us were on leadership, but we weren't in the type of leadership that could affect change that way. And so that whole conversation enraged me. And so by the end of that, because I knew it was a cop out, 
like and and here's what they said they said we will uh we want to release you to have like prayer nights about healing the nation and blah blah blah, blah. um it's a very nondescript way of like not dealing with the real issue <laughs> you just say that the the country needs to heal and not hey white people recognize your privilege so mm -hmm. essentially you are tasking people of color with addressing their own oppression when they didn't ask to and it's 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 really it's absurd um and so but i saw through the tea leaves of that i'm like this is bs you know didn't say that on the, on the phone of course but uh the second uh, we hung up i was like i'm done i'm done because trust is 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 broken now like i can't trust you like i already can't trust you because there's certain conversations i can't have with you and no church that talks about their open door policy as much as this one does should have that be an issue. This should be a safe space, but it can't be because when you're black in a, in a, in a, um, in a white evangelical space, uh, holiness is essentially the degree to which you can divorce yourself from your blackness. So you'll have uh, somebody who's white be like, you know, on, on the pulpit saying like, oh, I love being Polish or I love being Italian or I love being German. But the second I start having pride in my blackness, it's like, hey, Ben, you know, you know, you're more Christian than you are black. Never heard that said to a white person before. So and you've had that said to you. Oh, yeah. I've had it said a couple of times, like once in the mission field, too, uh, in Europe, <laughs> um, when a, a person running a hostel was was being noticeably was treating me and a Filipino person on that trip differently than the white men noticeably like asking us to remove hats and then allowing white men to keep theirs on saying men don't men don't wear hats inside saying men don't men don't wear hats inside um yeah and then when i tried to uh, deal with it my leadership team which was all white the ones most of them were silent and the other ones were like you know you're more christian than black and i'm like duly noted that does not change the fact that i'm being treated, treated differently and that was kind of the end of the conversation and so that's kind of where all of the like all of the things that had accrued kind of came to a point where I was like, it's right in front of your face now. And you are telling black people, hey, I don't have your back. Right. You are you are my family in Christ, but to a point. And I think some of that is obviously white privilege, but some of that is also theological, where, you know, there's a certain element of that theology that sort of forsakes the now for later. So it's like, we're so concerned with getting to heaven and storing our treasures up that we, that we say, you know, screw it when it comes to here, you know, who cares about racism here when we'll be, you know, skipping down streets of gold tomorrow, you know? Right. Um, and so I was done. I was like, I've seen what I need to see. I don't feel safe anymore. I already kind of didn't trust the leadership, but I was, you know, trying to be obedient and stay. And as an adoptee, there are a few things that scare me more than being alone and being isolated. So I'm like, you know, I already have a really weird relationship to the concept of family. Um, so if I walk away, I may never have it again, even if it's not good. So there was a lot of things swimming in my, in my mind at the time, but I was like, I just can't, I can't do this. Uh, so my wife had to be like, okay, look, I know they're on some BS right now. I get it. I don't agree with it either, but let's stick in. Let's try this. Let's, let's try to do what we can with what we've got.
and you know we'll see what happens and so it took it took some real convincing because i was livid but you but you know eventually i was like you know what fine because i can't leave by myself that's not fair to you and you know i'll be darned if this if this you know messes with my marriage I'm like it's not gonna happen <laughs> so um like this ain't like we survive homelessness this is not gonna be the thing that takes us out <laughs> right so um i sat there for a while and i was like okay cool 45 minutes later we get a phone call from that friend i was telling you all about and they had just gotten yelled at by the pastor the person that was on the phone with you 45 yes minutes later. Okay. yes and this pastor mind you my wife had told this pastor during this conversation that we had on the phone that we did not feel safe addressing these things we did not feel safe having these conversations like she put it real clear and across when the pastor talked to our friend they told our friend that we said that the space was safe to talk about it, essentially trying to gaslight them because they were another person who was trying to say, hey, what's going on? Why are you not talking about this? As a matter of fact, there were a few other people who tried to do that in a meeting that had happened at some other point in that evening. And they were accused of having the spirit of accusation if memory serves and were yelled at as well. I'm like, okay, so, so now you've told us that you won't back us up. And now you are lying to our friend twisting our words in order to paint them into a corner to silence them. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're, you're not, you were, you successfully talked to me back into it last time. This is not, no, I'm done now. I'm done now. Um, and my wife still say about that part. Um, I think because, uh, my wife has been in church her whole life. So when initially it was hard, because they're so used to like being in church and serving and giving until you can't give anymore. But I don't, I, I think they were recognizing that like I couldn't give anymore, but they still needed a bit of convincing. And so they slept on it, had a real crazy dream and then woke up and were like, Hey, yeah, I got the confirmation I need. Let's get out of here basically. And so, yeah, a few weeks later we announced we were leaving and um, it was, it didn't detangle easily, we'll say. I think a lot of people who uh, look at deconstructing people who have left are critical because they say, you know, like you should have left the right way, you know, but there is no right way. If you're talking in a lot of spaces, no matter how well you leave, no matter how much advance notice you leave, there's going to be some gossiping. There's going to be some, especially in that particular space uh because anybody who leaves is considered bitter right. uh and the church always did everything right uh so when we left i got a bunch of messages from people uh, a bunch of people were like creeping on my instagram uh trying to figure out what was going on and all kinds of stuff and i think after we left like another 30 people would end up leaving which is a sizable chunk um, but I think other people were just kind of done too, and they had their eyes open to what was going on. And so, yeah, it wasn't, there was one thing that led to our leaving, but within that one thing, several things, both things that had kind of led up to that point and things that were happening very immediately at that time. Well, it's part of the challenge is like, when you leave, you have no control over the narrative, right? They get to tell everyone else who's still there what happened. They get to speak for both them and you. And so, you know, it's going to be very difficult to leave on good terms when you're the marginalized party that's like being pushed out or not protect, you know, like, 
Yeah. And that's such a crazy making dynamic when you've been so integrated and these people have been doing life with you and then you become the wanted person or the, you know, the unwanted, I guess, right? The criminal, like, it's crazy. Sorry. You anyway. become, no, you become the person they warn people about. Right. Like, like the church. You warned about. The church does a really, at least part of the church anyway, does a really good job of like making the outside world seem toxic. So when you're so it makes it makes everything that isn't church seem like just ill-advised and weird and wrong and you know just evil or some flavor of demonic um and so to be on the outside of that it was hard hurtful because you know there's only but so much of the narrative that you can control but at the same time it was also kind of hilarious because of like the different stories you hear about why you left <laughs> And I don't remember what many of them are now, but there were like two or three narratives that were going out. And so whenever people would leave, they would talk to us because they saw us leave. And they were like, we left for a reason, but I don't believe whatever reason that they said that you're, you know, so they would come over and they'd be like, you know, hey, we just left and this, these were our experiences. And then every so often I'd be like, I'm just curious, what did it tell you about why we left? Um, and it was never correct. It was never right. Um, and it completely absolved the church of all responsibility every single time. And so that was always fun. And then especially the following year when I wrote threads and put them on Instagram about why I left, it made clear what the narrative was, you know, so I got to tell my own story on my own terms. So now it's like, whether or not you listen is on you, you know, now you're hearing it straight from my mouth. So whether my words, as it pertains to my experience, are louder than what somebody else is saying about my experience, now that's a you issue. It's not an issue of there being only one narrative. And uh, I wouldn't find this out until later, but when the church found out that I did that, apparently they were like screenshotting uh, my Instagram and like handing them out and talking about this, this, this thing in small groups. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I put it out, it had a crazy reaction. Like people who had left years earlier were like, yo, the stuff you're talking about now is a version of what I experienced way back when. And it's not necessarily always a racial thing, but just in terms of like the theological issues and the way people were treated and just power dynamic stuff. And people who hadn't talked in a long time were like reconnecting in the comment section. And it was, it was a healing moment for a lot of people. And it was really cool, but you could tell that there was a certain degree of threatened that the church felt about that. And then, and, and you can't help but feel like a little bit of a badass when that happens, because it's like, okay, now I'm taking back control of my story, but now this got you shook a little bit. And that means that you think that somebody's going to listen to this. And I'm fully convinced that people did listen to it, but they're just too scared to leave. You know, a lot of, a lot of them, you know, are college student age because they really targeted college students. And when you're, you know, 19, 20 years old and you're hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from home at school and the closest thing to family are these people who say, who love bomb you into infinity and tell you like you're great and you're wanted and you have purpose and all of these things, um, which by themselves are not bad things to say to somebody. But when it's done with manipulative and, you know, sort of ulterior motives in mind it can become a very dangerous thing. And so a lot of them, that's like family. And you cut that off, you cut off your support system. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I really believe there's a lot of people in the church who are taking things apart, but won't because they don't feel safe to you. Yeah, totally. I mean, you just have so much to lose. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot yeah. of professional Christians who have a lot of, to lose specifically their, uh, their paychecks. So, right. Right. Let alone your community, your reputation, your, you know, exactly. Yeah. All this. Yeah. That's ew. So relatable. <laughs> I mean, I left the church for very different reasons, but sure. uh, God, I mean, some of this is just too familiar. I'm like, Oh God, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things I love about the work you put out on, like the stuff you write on Instagram, um, when you specifically address racism is like, you'll get into the details and the nuance and the, you know, the arguments that people like typically white people have used to defend themselves or like absolve, like you said, themselves of responsibility and like make it something else. That's the problem, not racism mm-hmm. or not them. Um, what are some things that you would say to white people in the evangelical world that you're like, Hey, these comments or these, like these attitudes or rhetorics have like made your guys made you feel like this is irrelevant to you, but actually here's what's going on. And here are some things that are still a problem. Like, do you have any thoughts you'd care to share in that respect? So, um, this presumes that the white evangelical would want to listen to me. Right. That is a huge, Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, um, for as many differences as uh, me and my adoptive parent had uh, growing up and still have, um, I've been no contact with them for about 10 years now, but um, they did have some, some great pieces of advice for me, two of which were, if you're writing about a topic, assume that the person in front of you has no idea what they're talking about, which goes back to the specificity piece uh, and nuance, because that all matters. But the second thing was pick your battles. And so, I figured out after a while, you know, when, whether or not a conversation is good faith or not. Um, So, you know, you can generally tell based on uh, a person's demeanor, how they ask certain questions, uh, their insistence on using the word woke uh, out of context. (laughs) And when it's white evangelicals, it's always out of context. When they use that term, what do you think they're saying when they say that? Um, so whenever they use the word, the term woke to say anything, they're talking about black people. It is a shot at black people every time, every single time. Um, and here's why, because no other group of people use that word that way because they can't, because there's a specific context, the word woke. And I did a couple of things on this. I think I mentioned, I did something with Tim from new evangelicals about it. Um, and I made a post even before that about it, but the word woke was used to keep each other safe because this was during the Jim Crow South when, you know, loitering could get you arrested um, and black people were being killed for made up reasons because every piece of our existence was criminalized. Uh, And so if you know that you're unsafe, they would say, yo, like stay woke out here. They, they, they're, they're patrolling or stay woke. This is happening or that's happening. And it's been a part, of the zeitgeist for years and years and years almost a century and so it began to see like it's always existed amongst black people it's always been there but it started to see a lot more attention in the last 10 years and so as is the case with white evangelicals and ostensibly the republican party because you know the venn diagram there is very much a circle they sort of grabbed that word as sort of a catch-all 
and anything that contradicts their ideas of how the world should be is woke. At no point ever occurring to them that the opposite of being woke is asleep. And they're proud of that for some reason. But um, this is, but because, but it's not really very surprising because it's not a, uh, an ideology that roots itself in, you know, critical thinking or deductive reasoning. So of course they're not going to see it that way. But anytime you see the word woke thrown out there, um, it's a shot at black people every single time. And it's kind of morphed into this thing that they use to throw at things they don't like. So when we had this uh, bank bailout recently, you had a lot of guys saying um, it's these woke banks because they insisted on diversity, equity, and inclusion that led to venture capitalists spending their money irresponsibly. But usually it would be like a board of 12 white people and one black person and like one woman. Sometimes maybe it was 12 white guys and one black woman. And it's like, well, it's their fault. Anytime anything goes wrong, um, it's your fault because we lack the self-awareness to even begin to ask the important questions. But yeah, woke has become a dog whistle. Absolutely. Um, and it makes Black people less safe because now there's one more word we can't use because of how it's been weaponized. It's one more thing we can't, you know, because there's very little of Black culture that is allowed to be just Black culture, in part because white sort of the concept of whiteness has never meant anything it can't monetize. So um, it's so many parts of our culture have been distilled and turned into something else or have been stripped away from their meaning. A lot of what people call Gen Z slang is really just AAVE, uh, but you just hear it from white people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so woke is no exception to that. So anytime uh, you hear that word used in a pejorative way, it is a racist term. Wow. Okay, so I'm thinking about the white people listening right now or watching um, yeah. who, you know, I think probably have done their due diligence on deconstructing and like just becoming conscious of some systems they were part of or whatever, but maybe still, like I'm wondering if they're, maybe not conscious of the ways that some of this racism is still unobserved or like passively permitted. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything else you would want to share with like the white folk, maybe who are still in the church or who have come out of it, but haven't had to face any of the racial aspects of the problems that they've walked away from. Um, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, I would say that an important thing to talk about, like, I mean, you can read all the books, you can read uh, The New Jim Crow, you can watch all the documentaries. I believe like the 13th is the one on Netflix. Yes, that was that um, one, yeah. uh, That talks about like the loophole in the 13th Amendment that enables slavery still. Mm -hmm. um, you can, you know, talk about all the laws that are still in place um, or how the government still won't outlaw lynching even after it's been requested, you know, multiple times, you can do all that, but you have to understand the power dynamic at play. Because white people have been in power, you know, and honestly, there's going to be people who say, well, what about Obama? What about him? He's one out of 46. And even then, his entire first presidency was marked by a white guy named Mitch McConnell blocking his entire agenda. So <laughs> even when he was in power, he wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um 
so power dynamics matter. Understanding privilege is understand. So the best way of understanding privilege is, you know, basically privilege is thinking something isn't a problem because it isn't a problem to you. So you attach whiteness to that. So you're thinking racism isn't a problem because racism hasn't affected you. That doesn't mean you haven't had to work hard in this life. All of us have, but your skin color is not an impediment to that. You know, your, your skin color is not an impediment to your ability to uh, get a home or just get loans from the bank or accrue wealth. Um, the, I think I heard like the average white family has like well over a hundred thousand dollars uh, in wealth, whereas the average black family is about $17,000. Um, and it might actually even be wider than that. So understand how your whiteness creates opportunities for you that they wouldn't necessarily create for me. And that's not your fault, right? Like, we're not saying being a white person is a bad thing. You couldn't choose that. That's not fair. What we're saying is that with that comes some responsibility. So for an example, as a cisgendered heterosexual man, even though I'm black and that creates certain hindrances, I'm still a cisgendered heterosexual man. And that affects like how I show up in the world. I have a responsibility to pay attention to certain things that don't affect me, that affect people around me. So the women in my life, uh, the gay people in my life, the trans people in my life, um, be like a huge part of deconstruction was understanding how much harder it is for those communities. That understanding that even though I am a marginalized community, that does not absolve me of marginalizing other people. Mm. I still have power and I still have privilege that affords me um, certain advantages. And with that comes a responsibility to open the door for those people who don't have it in the way that I do. And so what I would challenge white people with who are maybe struggling this or wrestling with this, first of all, if you're wrestling, that's a good thing. (laughs) Because that means your heart is not hardened to the point where you just think like, oh, that's not me. That's a good place to be because that means some things can maybe start changing, but also understand that with your whiteness comes things, things that make the whole situation easy for you because it was set up for you. Um, Especially if you're a white man. Now, if you're a white woman, there's some differences, but you also need to understand how you are being used within the greater framework of white supremacy, where there's moments where you can co-opt movements started by women of color because you are a woman, but because you're white, you are, your voice will automatically be centered. Again, understanding power dynamics. Just because you're a woman does not necessarily mean that absolves you of responsibility in that way, right? So um, really understanding how you show up in the world, understanding what, you're, what that means, you know? Mm-hmm. Understanding that even if you are a white person who even if you're a person who's maybe a person of color who's white passing, understanding that being white passing means that you have certain advantages. And I would encourage you to not try to lean into the marginalized side of yourself when you're being challenged in terms of whiteness, because you do benefit from that, even though you are a marginalized community. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like just being understanding of the nuances and the intersectionality there. Um, and that's going to take some work. And it might be a bit exhausting, but, and not to make 
totally crazy comparisons, but I often say that I didn't know what fear was until I looked in my wife's eyes when I had to go anywhere after 830 at night. If that's not a reality for you, then how do you define exhaustion? Because my exhaustion and your exhaustion are likely two very, very different things. So consider that we live in two different nations on the same landmass, wow. essentially. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a lot, but that's kind of what I would say. Jeez. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Uh, wow. That is, wow. Yeah, see, I never thought about that. That's my privilege of showing, right? Like, man, that is crazy. Oh. <laughs> Okay, for the sake of time, I want to, I want to ask something about the adoption, adoptive side of this as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Whew. Um, I saw something on your Instagram. You said something about how an adoptee doesn't owe you a happy ending. Yeah. Would you yeah. mind speaking on that a little bit? So, um, there is there is a a degree to which Disney consumption can be unhealthy for people because it it uh, gives them a false sense of reality. <laughs> when we're in these situations, we talk about adoption in a very binary way, where it's like this, per this baby was struggling and now look at this family, they've come and taken them in and now everything's great because they're in this space and everything's honky dory and you know, they live happily ever after. Mm. It's very rarely that way, even in the best of situations, particularly if you've been adopted for, as an infant, you are more likely to um, experience interfacing with mental health professionals. You are four times more likely to have thoughts of unaliving yourself and maybe even attempts. Um, I believe four times more likely than a person who hasn't been. Um, so there's all of these things that happen when a child is taken from their birth parent. There's a disconnection there and that disconnection can lead to things later on in life. Um, you know, a lot of ADHD diagnoses. I was diagnosed almost 25 years ago. So, you know, there's, there's that. And sometimes even other things, you know, PTSD. Um, I have never been diagnosed, but I'm fairly certain I have some flavor of that. All of these things. And you never really know, like you can never really place the feeling until you get older and you start really digging in to these things. And especially for me, like, you know, I kind of grew into the internet. I was born in the late eighties. So, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing until I was in high school and almost the end of it so you know there's a group degree to which like i didn't have those resources until i got older mm -hmm. and so when i got older and i started looking at this stuff and i was like oh this all lines up there's so much stuff that gets trapped up in you and there's so many things you experience but if you're in a situation where the people around you are not trauma-informed and see things in a very black and white way you know, what you're experiencing that is the byproduct of all the things you went through before you could talk now gets treated as, oh, the grades are slipping. Well, they just don't want to work hard enough. They're just lazy. I don't think they want it. I think they should fail. Um, these were all things that were said to me, by the way, mm. or they just don't want to apply yourself. You know, that, that was my favorite one. Apply yourself. Everyone tells you to apply yourself, but they never tell you what that, what that means. Mm. Um, and it all comes back to effort or it all comes back to just these, or if, if it's even paid attention to at all. But again, there's this narrative of salvation, essentially. Like you were saved by this family. 
So now you owe them. So anything less than sunshine and rainbows is an affront to that. To their benevolence. To their benevolence, their mm-hmm. kindness. Mm-hmm. And it's always this thing of like, well, don't you feel so lucky? Like, you know, or, you know, or you get sometimes get guilt tripped. Like, you know, like I, you should be thankful because I put food on, food on your table. And, I'm, and, you know, as I get older, I'm like, so was not feeding me on the table at some point? <laughs> like, yeah. like, shall I canonize you for doing the bare minimum? Like, is that what you want? <laughs> shall I throw you a parade down Broad Street? Like, what do you want? Like, hmm. and I think that's the stuff that gets missed because it's supposed to be you're thankful. And if you're not, you're ungrateful. Hmm. Done. And it's always from people who have this removed experience with adoption who only hear about it or only see about it in Lifetime movies and feel like it's A to B, but it's not that. No human experience is like that. The world is only black and white for people who can afford for it to be black and white. So everybody else is in the middle. Like you've never met a person that wasn't in a gray area. So my particular gray area is this. Mm. It's, hey, there were advantages to me being adopted because my birth parent had struggles with substance abuse. And, you know, um, it introduced me to music. It introduced me to a lot of things that I would not have been able to have access to. It, 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 I probably got a better education because of it. And, you know, I was exposed, again, just exposed to a lot more things. However, I still have a lot of resulting trauma from not only just the separation from parents, but also not knowing who I was, um, not being connected to my context, not seeing people who, you know, shared my same tendencies or understood all those things. An adoptive family can get very close, but they can't nail it the way that a birth family can. So it's not this neat and tidy thing where it's all pluses, you know what I mean? And because people can't handle that, they expect you to acquiesce and tailor fit your reality to fit their comfort, by which point it's not your reality anymore. And so in order to justify and reify their, their scope of humanity, they have to deny you yours. Mm. And so that's why I said adoptees don't owe you a happy ending because we're people. And a person gets to have real experiences. A person gets to feel a multitude of ways about one thing. The second that doesn't happen, that person's personhood is being taken away. Mm. And so I don't, I'm not going to allow you, like I fought too hard to have a personality and to have my own sense of self for you to take it away because you don't know how to deal with discomfort. Mm. It took a, like, it took a long time and a lot of work to get here. Like I'll be 35 this year. That's too old to me. (laughs) It took me too long to get to this place. Right. Because of all the stuff that had to happen. In addition to the fact that I wasn't told the entire truth about my adoption and didn't find that out until my mid twenties, that's a whole other ball of wax. So like I've had to work backwards my entire life. Like I had to reverse engineer confidence. This took work and I'm not going to 
just sacrifice that over a like a pithy comment from someone that refuses to dissenter themselves. I'm not going to do it. Mm. And I know a lot of adoptees feel that way. Uh, and so when I put that out there, that was the thing. They were like, exactly. This is exactly how I feel. And it's not just younger people. It's people in their 20s, people in their 50s who were like, exactly. They expect me to be this thing and they took away my personhood, but not anymore. So yeah, that's kind my, of. Yeah, I'm also hearing like, you're not allowed to be upset or have challenges or acknowledge trauma without the person who adopted you taking it personally. And it's a commentary on them when actually your difficulty has nothing to do with them. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, they, it, it's, it's like, unless you're singing their praises, you're, you're crucifying them. And that only gets more tricky when you're in church, because, you know, if you feel feelings that aren't happiness, or joy, or resplendence before the Lord, then you are, something is wrong with you. It's a personal thing. It, and this isn't in every denomination, but certainly in evangelical spaces, it's this thing of like, you're not praying hard enough. You're not, it's, it's a works-based thing. They tell you it isn't. It's like, it's not based on works, but it's based on works. It absolutely is. And so um, there's always this element of, you need to try hard, you need to pray more, or maybe you haven't surrendered that to the Lord or this, that, or the third. Um, when really you just have complicated feelings about something and you're allowed to have complicated feelings about something, but it's not allowed in a lot of spaces because it requires an emotional vulnerability that it requires for me to exist, but doesn't require for you to get through your day. Like I had to be self-aware all the time and I'm thankful for it now. Like I, I, cause I was always more of a, I was always a more sensitive cat anyway. And that helped, you know, a lot, but when you can successfully detach yourself from that, of course you're going to be critical because it threatens your defense and no one around you cares enough to tell you that, hey, if somebody else's experiences in something that you will never experience threaten your reality, then maybe what you've built your stuff on ain't that strong. But yeah, there's very much the sentiment of you're not allowed to be this thing. You're not allowed to feel that thing. That is very much in play in that space. Yeah. Wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. yeah it's wild. Um, and I imagine people who are adoptees and maybe haven't had the journey you've had been able to um, connect to or identify this as much. I bet hearing you say that is probably like a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh my gosh, yes, that's. That's what it seems like. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I, I was just speaking from my own personal experience yeah. and I've talked to other other you know adoptees um in particular other people who are transracial adoptees and they have a whole other that's a whole other subset of stuff for them um and again intersectionality understanding privilege like there's certain things i will not experience because i was a black person adopted by a black person mm -hmm. but if you are a black person adopted by white people or if you are being adopted from a nation and say in south asia and you're being adopted by white people there's going to be a conflict and it's going to mean different things in america because these different identities show up differently right um so i feel a certain responsibility to amplify the voices of the transracial adoptees because if anybody's going to get it get it badly it's going to be them like i'm gonna I'm, i get it pretty badly but a transracial adoptee someone who's supposed to bow and sacrifice themselves at the altar of whiteness dare speak against you know the construct like we just saw what they did with Colin Kaepernick. 
they already don't like him as is because he made them confront uncomfortable realities. Now you're going to do it again in a different way. Of course, there's going to be pushback, you know? So yeah, I, it seems like what I'm saying is opening up some things for some people. Mm. Um, and again, usually when I'm on mine, I'm sharing my heart and trying to be responsible about the way I share it and kind of attach different things societally to kind of, you know, make it a little less pointed. And not that I put a ton of thought into it. It's just usually something I'm feeling that day or that morning and I'll, or like the night before I'll type it and then adjust it as I need to. But, um, so very often, you know, a lot of things I post, I'll have come up with like 45 minutes before I post it. So it's these things I'm just kind of sharing just kind of from the gut. And then I'll see all these reactions from all over the place. People from all over the country are like, Hey, yeah, this is exactly it this is the language I was looking for. And that's not even where my head was at, but it seems to be helping. So yeah. yeah. Um, can't be mad at that. <laughs> totally. Wow. Thank you. Jeez. Uh, yeah. There's like a, like a scalpel, like a laser point type communication in what you're expressing and your ability to articulate these things and the different spaces that you occupy and the intersectionality that's taking place in your life. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, your voice is a gift. I'm really thankful for you doing the work of putting words to this. And um, I, I feel like it's, I find it mostly inspiring and educational and informative. I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I didn't think about it that way. You know, I'm like very much benefiting from what you're confronting and the way you're clarifying it. It's so helpful and needed. So yeah, thank you for doing what you're doing. I want to ask as well, like, how do people plug into what you're doing? What do you have to offer? What, what can people like engage with in your world? Like, tell us all the things. Okay. So, um, so I'm on most social media, so you can find me on Instagram at Hey there, Benji. Uh, that's like kind of the front door, if you will. Um, I do other things as well. Um, I do a podcast called important things with Ben and Carol, Carol being my wife. Uh, we have a public one and we have a Patreon one. Uh, so patreon.com slash important underscore things. Um, there's a whole thing on my page if you want to like support what I'm doing uh, monetarily, um, which has been a huge help recently. Um, I'm just coming out of uh, long COVID um, and I had to essentially forfeit my job because of <laughs> being sick. So uh, that's been uh, a huge piece of something that I'm pushing. But um, yeah, I'm on Instagram at hey there, Benji. I am on TikTok at Hey There Benji. Uh, I am on Twitter at underscore Hey There Benji. And um, I'm currently working on more things to put out, uh, more topics um, and like things that are like reels and videos and things like that. Um, so I've been looking into something on the moral majority because uh, that's a really important topic, but also uh, welfare, believe it or not, and how that dovetails with racism and how that's been used and weaponized against people of color, you know, for the last 40 some odd years. Um, working on a reel on that one, just trying to kind of get it down to a bite-sized, you know, yeah. piece of information. But yeah, we're the wheels are always spinning over here. So nice. Love it. Okay, great. Well, we'll provide the links below in the yeah. show notes so everyone can grab those. Benji, thank you so much for being here and sharing your thoughts, opening your heart, like sharing your story. Like I'm honored to get to hear it. And I love that people get to hear from you here. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's fun. Of course. Yeah, for sure. And everyone else, thanks for watching, for listening. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. 
If you want to dive deeper, check out MikeMyFShiro.com.